Well, good morning again. Um, most of you know me, but for those who don't, my name is Craig Lotz. I'm the Creative Arts Coordinator here at Grace. Uh, I was on staff for a long time, over 25 years full-time. Helped establish the arts ministry here at Grace. Uh, I helped with some of the church plants, Hendersonville, Brevard, and Tryon. I'm now part-time here, uh, working behind the scenes most mornings with the order and pieces. It's kind of like Wizard of Oz, you know, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain, you know, <laughs> just back there, you know, running around. Uh, occasionally they ask me to come out and uh, it, it give me a chance to share or, or step into the rotation. Patrick is off this week, much needed rest, good for him. And so I'm stepping into the rotation and all I'm going to do is talk about the arts today. No, just kidding. Um, <clears throat> no, I'm going to jump right into the series. In fact, the spirit series that we've been in, uh, we're ending the series today. We have been in a series, as you know, since the summer, um, and I'm going to pick back up on that and end today. And then next week, we're going to be uh, doing a small series through Christmas called Glory Days. Um, and then after Christmas, first of the year, we'll probably come back to the spirit for just a little bit. Um, but this morning, before uh, we jump into the passage, I just want to kind of give you a summary of where we've been. Uh, and so I want to look at that real quick. Uh, we have, I think I have a something, there we go. We began with looking at passages throughout Scripture of sightings of the Holy Spirit, His role, His nature, His purpose, and work. We then shifted to a mini-series on the fruit of the Spirit, and I want to talk just a little bit about that, remind you again, if you weren't here with us, when we talk about the fruit of the Spirit, a lot of times, whether you realize this or not, you may be thinking the fruit of the Spirit is almost like the tree on the left. It's a tree, and there's all these different fruits that you're trying to work on in your life. But as Patrick unpacked every week, it's actually more like this orange slice. It's one fruit, and all the different sections of the fruit. Okay, and so when the Spirit is at work, those things are coming in all at once. So it's not just like, um, you know, I'm, I'm doing pretty good with goodness, but I need to work a little bit more on joy, or my self-control is okay, but I need to get a little better at kindness. The reality is when the Spirit is at work, it's coming in all at once. Let me give you an example. Let's say that I'm a, a really bold person by nature, you know, and I'm just able to take risks and do all kinds of things. And people are like, wow, look at God working in him with, with his boldness. But sometimes I, I get so bold, I run over people. I hurt people, you know. I don't pay attention to people. And I go, yeah, I, I really got to work on that, you know. I got to work on my gentleness and kindness. But see, if, if the Spirit was fully at work working that fruit into me, I would be remembering how much God is patient and loving and gentle with me. And so while I'm being bold, I would also be able to be gentle. I know this sounds impossible, <laughs> but just hold on to that as we look at it more. Or let's say, for instance, you're someone who, by nature, you're very kind, you're very compassionate, you're always caring for other people. But you know, you need to be bolder and take more risks and, and, and be willing to even challenge people with tough love. You know, you say, yeah, I, I got to work on that. But the reality is, if the Spirit is fully bringing that fruit in, which He will over time, um, and obviously will be perfected in heaven, but as that's coming into your life, you will be reminded of how much God has taken risk and boldness with you, stepping out of heaven, working into your life, and you could step out in boldness too because of the gospel. So a lot of times when those things are not coming in, we're forgetting the gospel, but I just want to remind you, again, it's not a tree with a bunch of different fruits. It's a slice, and the Spirit is bringing it in all at once. So we then uh, went from there, and we started looking at uh, the gifts last week. Uh, by the way, one other thing on fruit before I forget. Literally in the Greek, fruit means the product of, the result of. In other words, it's something you literally can't do on your own. The Spirit has to bring it in. It is the fruit of the Spirit. That's the whole point. So we then started to look at gifts. And over the last few weeks, we did a little mini-series mini on that. If you remember, the first week, we looked at uh, what it meant to our motivation with our gifts, what it meant to, uh, are we, is God useful or is he beautiful? 
Like, are, are, as he gives us these gifts, are we just using them for our own glory, or are we actually using them for him? We then started looking at the diversity of gifts, and we had that scene from Fellowship of the Rings where Galadriel is passing out all the different gifts, and Sam says, hey, can I have one of those daggers, you know? And, uh, but then you remember the scene at the end where um, Gimli says, I just want to gaze on Galadriel. And we were reminded again to not focus so much on the gifts, but the gift giver and the one who has given the gifts. Then the next week, we looked at what it means to strengthen the body with the gifts, supporting and encouraging one another. We looked at that old clip from Jack LaLanne and reminding us again that we are in this together as one, working together. And now today, we come to roles in the church and then ultimately our aim. So if you would, would you stand and join me in today's passage from 1 Corinthians 12, 27 through 13, 8. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. And God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, and of different kinds of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? Now, eagerly desire the greater gifts. Love is indispensable, and yet I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over to my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. You may be seated. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord. My rock and my redeemer. Wow, there is a lot in that passage. Um, there is no way we're going to be able to cover all of that today. I'm definitely going to have to give more of a general uh, view of it all. But a side confession, particularly on that last part of the passage. Um, in my entire time I've been here at Ministry at Grace, I would say that this passage has been one of my biggest haunts. And I think it's ironic that I'm the one preaching on it this morning. <laughs> I'm not qualified except through the work of Jesus. But the Spirit has um, reminded me through the week, <clears throat> through others, that it's His Word, not mine. It's His example, not mine. <laughs> And I'm offering today the same thing that I'm, I'm saying to you to trust. These words that I give you today, I'm trusting them too. That's why I'm here. And so I step in faith again this morning. I want to unpack a little bit of this with you. But as I'm preaching, I'm preaching to myself on this. Well, right up front, Paul uh, gives a list of the various roles. You know, the various roles on the team he talks about prophets and teachers and miracles and healing and helping and guidance. And here's just a quick summary here, okay? I'm not going to, I'm telling you right now, I'm not spending a lot of time unpacking all these for two reasons. One, this is probably a series within a series right here. But number two, if you remember looking back at the passage, Paul doesn't spend a lot of time on this. He hits the parts real quickly, but he's pushing you to something greater, and that's what I want to spend the bulk of the time on. But just quickly in the passage, talks about parts that they were placed in the church. Another uh, uh, interpretation of that is that they were appointed, that all these parts were appointed, that they're sovereign from God. Uh, apostles, 
were uh, also considered messengers. This is what some of the commentaries were saying. You know, they're sent on a mission with a message, not the same as the, apostles, the original apostles, but with a different uh, role and purpose. The prophets were similar to the apostles. They were also messengers, but it's more personal, more practical, more local. Um, the teachers were called to interpret the word. Uh, through study and, and uh, what have you. The, the miracles and healings that he talks about there, uh, you know, some of the commentaries talked about more so in the, in the very beginning of the church. It still obviously happens today, but not quite in the same way as it did with the original church. Uh, also talks about the gift of helping. Many commentaries pointed out that helping is really the most frequent gift in the body, that essentially we're all called to do that. Um, there was also the gift of, of guidance, which is wisdom and direction. Uh, you see that a lot with our leadership and elders. Then it talked about tongues. Holy cow, as I began to dig into that, it is all over the map. It is as confusing as that even sounds. Um, a lot of different various thoughts and interpretation on that. So again, I'm not even going to unpack that today because... I think Paul quickly shifts. I just wanted to give you a summary of that, okay? I really do think that's more like in a discipleship class. That is not 30 minutes on a Sunday morning. But those are some of the parts or the roles in the church. But then Paul quickly shifts, and he says, Now, eagerly desire the greater gifts. Love is indispensable. And yet I will show you the most excellent way. It's like he's saying, look, here's a team. Here's all the roles on the team. Here's what everybody's playing, okay? But let me tell you the goal. The objective, the touchdown, is love. That's the most excellent way. That's where we're headed. He spent all these previous chapters on instructing and teaching the early church and what they should be emphasizing on. But here he's reminding them again of a most excellent way for the relationships in the church. We've talked about fruit. We've talked about gifts. We've talked about our collective purpose. But he wants to lay a foundation under all of this, which I think, you know, providentially, um, I'm, I'm guessing this was uh, Patrick's purpose, but even if it wasn't, uh, I believe that it makes sense that this is the last passage in this series because this lays under everything. This goes under everything we've been looking at. So I want to spend the bulk of the time now talking about the, the back half of that passage. Now, what is our problem? Like, not just in the church, but around the world. If you ask anybody, like, not just Christians, non-Christians, you ask anyone. Look around at this world and you say, what is our problem and what is the answer? You know, and this is, I mean, you, you look around at this world today, and obviously it feels like we're more divided, more chaotic, more anger, more division than we've ever had. And in some ways I think that's true, but in other ways I think we just simply have more information than we've ever had. Uh, we have the internet now that connects us in our depravity, so we're more aware of what everyone's doing all over the world. We have, it said that we have 5.25 billion cell phones on the planet. Did you know that? It's like one great tower of Babel. We're just connected in our sin and depravity, and we're aware of what everything is going on all the time, and it is overwhelming when we look at it, right? So you look around and you start asking, okay, what's the answer? What's going to unite us? What's going to fix everything? And so I was just having a little fun, you know, so I, so I said, all right, I'm going to type into Facebook, you know, and you, I type into Facebook and you get an answer on something like this. It shows, shows a slide, like, here's the answer, you know, it's the circle of love and here's all the things we need to be doing, you know, to make this world a better place, you know. Or I typed into Google, I said, 10 ways to change the world, you know, and it came up with all these different things. But every one of those, you know, like on the top, it would be like, you know, uh, climate change and politics and, you know, recycle. But then underneath it, almost every one of them was like kindness, compassion, empathy, forgiveness, like love. It was all the things that really, you know, is the thing that's going to bring change. I typed into Twitter, which is now called X, right? And this video came up. This may sound corny. It does sound corny. But, but, it, but love is the answer. It is the answer. Yep. Yeah, it is. It sounds corny because we're all scared. You know, we're all scared of trying to love people, being rejected, or someone taking advantage of you because you're trying to be loving. Sure. But if we all could just relax and love each other, 
Wouldn't hurt to have more love in the world. It definitely wouldn't hurt. Yeah. It'd be great. If you're not aware, that's a podcaster, Joe Rogan, and he's interviewing Elon Musk, which is one of the richest people on the planet, and he's saying, hey, love is the answer, right? You can't buy it. Uh, you look at the arts. You look at any art form. Look at, look at songs over all the different decades. You know, It doesn't matter. All the great songs, there's almost always a point to love. Like, here's a classic from the 70s that some of y'all will remember. Light up the world. Come on, that feels good, right? That's 50 years ago. 50 years ago, and we're still divided. Love's the answer, right? Love's the answer. Look at some of the great TV shows. Some of the great TV shows over the years. If you type in, like, top five TV shows of all time, uh, there's going to be certain shows that are almost always on that list. You've heard us talking about shows like Breaking Bad or Better Call Saul. The crazy, crazy thing is they're almost on everyone's list, like the top five or top ten. But almost always in those shows, there's a transformation with the character. The character's on some type of journey, and they're being transformed. And almost always it's dealing with, with a way that they're loving others or they're loving themselves. Um, I want to show you a particular scene here. I would love to, to tell you that on those two shows that I mentioned, Breaking Bad, Better Call Saul, I would actually tell you that there is a transformation that happens with those two main characters that, that does move them in a way towards love. I can't unpack that or I'm going to give away the ending. It's a very complicated, complex series. But let me show you a scene here from Breaking Bad. So the main character, Walt and Jesse are in this, and Jesse is starting to realize that maybe Walt isn't really, has never really been his friend, that Jesse is just useful to Walt, that he's just a means to an end. Check this out. Would you just for once stop working me? What are you talking about? Can you just uh, stop working me for like 10 seconds straight? Uh, stop jerking me around? Jesse, I am not working you. Yes. Yes, you are. All right, just drop the whole concerned dad thing and tell me the truth. I mean, you're, you're acting like me leaving town is, is all about me and turning over a new leaf, but it's really, it's really about you. Just say so. Just ask me for a favor. Come on. Just tell me you need this. I remember the first time I saw that scene, I felt like I was staring in a mirror. Um, how many times that I have worked it, you know, with people, um, that I had a, a bigger goal and they were a means to an end. I think that's, you know, a lot of the times these clips that you see us use, uh, whether I grabbed them or Patrick grabbed them, they've usually impacted us first. It's not like we're just going to some site somewhere. <laughs> um, but I think we can all relate to that in one sense or another, that our motives are not always pure with each other. You know, that many times uh, underneath it, we're actually just loving ourselves. What about movies? Um, obviously, all the, you know, the great movies over the years, you look at every decade, you see some, a, a theme where the main character is transformed by love or, or moved by love. Um, I say this because, again, TV shows, music, movies, there, there's always that, those central themes that everybody can relate to, whether you're a Christian or non-Christian. We can all look at it and go, yeah, that's, that's a better thing, you know? 
So you look at like, you know, Star Wars, you know, where Vader is changed by Luke's love, you know, that's the thing that finally changes him, you know, is the love of his son, you know, or, or Frodo throwing off the ring. He throws off power for what? So that he can love Middle Earth, save Middle Earth. Um, you see it in recent series like, you know, Hunger Games, you know, where Katniss throws off and, and gives her life for her sister and enters, enters into the Hunger Games, a sacrificial love and... You know, even in the, the uh, Avengers series with superheroes, you know, you see the Iron Man going from being a partying, uh, self-focused, narcissistic character to, in the very end, being willing to give everything to save humanity. It's a complete 180 from who he was. Probably one of the last people in the Avengers you would expect to be the one to, to, to save the day. There's always this transformation that's going on with these characters, and the writers and all of us, whether they're Christian or not, are pushing us to the idea that it's not about self-love, it's about loving others. There's a point in your life where you're going to have to think about others more than yourself. It's kind of like this scene right here. Arrogance and fear still keep you from learning the simplest and most significant lesson of all. Which is? It's not about you. He's arrogant that he's been a great uh, doctor and physician, but you've still missed the bigger point. It's not about you. It's not about you. We can go to literature. We can go to self-help books. We can go to counselors. We can go to teachers. We can go to philosophers. We can go to even to the other major religions, not even Christianity. We can look at some of the major religions. They're all saying the same thing. Love is the answer. We don't have a corner on this. Christianity isn't the only one saying this. Everybody's saying this. Gandhi said this, the day, go back one, the day the power of love overrules the love of power, the world will know peace. Buddha said this, hatred does not cease by hatred, but only by love. This is the eternal rule. Jesus, when asked, what is the greatest commandment? He said this, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So what makes Christianity unique? What makes it, um, we're all talking about the same thing. The problem is we don't love well. The answer is we need to love better. Why is Christianity different? Well, before we answer that, I do want to look quickly back at the passage that we read earlier, particularly the last few verses. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Now, if you've ever worked in the wedding uh, business, you, you see this passage comes out a lot at weddings, but it applies to all relationships, obviously. But do you see the problem here? I mean, do you? I, I've been sitting on this all week. Um, it's a beautiful way to live. You look at all of that and you're like, man, if we would all live like that, love never fails? Are you kidding me? Never fails? It reminds me of the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus is, gives the Beatitudes and then he gives this list of all the things like murder and lust in our hearts and what it means to turn the other cheek and love your neighbor as yourself and an increasing bar of righteousness he keeps giving on the Sermon on the Mount till he gets to the very end and he says, be perfect. You want to know what the standard is? Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. He says, you want to know what the, what the bar is? Perfection. Mic drop. I look back at this, this Corinthians passage and ends with love never fails. It's like Paul says, mic drop, here's the standard. It feels impossible to me. I mean, I fail all the time in my marriage, in my friendships, in ministry. So what's the answer? How do we change? 
You know, the, the struggle to love is, again, as I mentioned, it's not unique to Christianity. We all struggle with trying to live differently, to live better. And we set rules and we read self-help books, but we all struggle with this thing inside of us that we know there's a way we ought to live, and yet we don't. And, and C.S. Lewis said in Mere Christianity that that is our struggle. He said, these then are the two points I want to make. First, that human beings all over the earth have this curious idea that they ought to behave in a certain way and cannot really get rid of it. Secondly, that they do not, in fact, behave in that way. They know the law of nature. They break it. C.S. Lewis is saying that is the very proof that there must be something more because there's something inside of you that you know you ought to live a certain way and yet you don't. Where does that come from? Why do you even think there's a different way you should be living? And why do you never measure up even to your own standards? We instinctively know that, that we should act a certain way, that we should love a certain way, and yet we don't. So I ask you again, what makes Christianity unique when it comes to love and real change? Let's look at 1 Corinthians again, but before we do that, I want to look at one other passage in light of this. 1 John, you heard it earlier in the service, and this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he's loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us, and so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. We love because he first loved us. Gospel of John says that in the beginning the word was with God. The word was God. That in the, he was with God in the beginning. That Jesus is God. That he and God are one. That their character and their very nature are the same. You understand? So, Jesus, so what it's saying here is God and Jesus, they don't choose to be loving it's not like love sits out here like it's an attribute and then they choose to be loving. He is love. He is the embodiment of it. He is the source of it. He is, he is, he is the only place to find it. And so um, let's read this passage again. Let's read 1 Corinthians again. But I really believe that when Paul is writing this, he's got to be thinking more like this. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus does not envy, does not boast, is not proud. Jesus does not dishonor others, is not self-seeking, is not easily angered, keeps no records of wrong, does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Jesus always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Jesus never fails. It's not a concept. It's a person. Love is a person, and he's the very source of it. So think about that in light of the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of Jesus' Spirit. So his, his Spirit, the fruit that we're being called to, is his, his very Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, all of the things that we've talked about. It's his very nature. It's the very fruit of who he is. And so what does it mean to us to keep in step with that? How, again, do we even, does that come into our lives? We've looked at a lot of different ways over the weeks. Well, I want to give you a quote that's been really helpful to me on this particular subject over the years. Um, and it's from Tim Keller. I know that a lot of times if... If you're not familiar with, you've not listened to his teachings much, you probably think like, man, what's the deal talking about Tim Keller all the time, you know? But I really believe that God so used him, that the Spirit so worked in his life, that just like the church has previously looked at like Spurgeon and Jonathan Edwards and C.S. Lewis, that I really believe in future generations we're going to talk about Tim Keller like that. I really believe that it's going to be like, I mean, God so mightily used him. Uh, Bill Lindner, who used to be on staff here at Grace, he referred to Keller as the gospel Yoda. <laughs> Just giving wise sayings. I love that. Keller says this about the uniqueness of Christianity. He says, it's not the what, but the how and why. 
It says, we agree on the what we ought to love. But where we differ is how the power to do it and why the motivation to do it. So a quick look again at 1 John. We love because he first loved us. So we're called to love. We agree on the what, but the Christianity is unique in the how and the why. How? By the power of the Spirit. Why? Because we've been loved. That is more unique. That is unique to any belief system on the planet. Any belief system on the planet. Because the two things are, one, you don't have the power to do it. You're going to have to have something within you to do it. It's not like, here's a standard, now go meet the standard. It's like, no, I, I literally need help. And then along the way, as I was mentioning earlier, you have to constantly keep preaching the gospel to yourself. Why? Because you've been loved. I want to show you a clip here. We've used it before, but it was really helpful to me. Uh, again, I've said this before, I speak in clips. <laughs> And a lot of times, seeing it is really helpful to me. Um, in this scene, it's from, uh, it's from the film Blood Diamond. It's set in Africa. We've shown this before, but it's worth showing again. A father's young son has been taken in by the local insurgents. He's been brainwashed into fighting as a soldier. And so the father leaves everything, leaves the village, and goes into the jungle, goes searching for his son. He's going to bring his son home at all costs, even if it means he gets killed. And in this scene, they finally come upon the sun, but they quickly see that the sun has been taken over by the lies. Solomon. Dia, what are you doing? Dia, young babe, young babe, what are you doing? of the problem and the tribe. You are a good boy who loves soccer and school. Your mother loves you so much. She waits by the fire making plantains and red palm oil stew with your sister yonder. And you do, baby? The cows wait for you. And Babu, the wild dog who wants no one but you. Hmm? I know they made you do bad things. But you're not a bad boy. I am your father, who loves you. And you will come home with me and be my son again. What changes the son? Is it the father giving him three steps, scolding him, promising him, you know, telling him to do better? Romans says that while we were enemies, Christ died for us. While we were holding up the gun, he dies for us. Romans 2 says that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance, that it's his love that overwhelms us, just like you're overwhelmed when you're watching that, and that's just a movie. We're overwhelmed by what he has done for us. I want to take a moment. Um, Andrew and I talked earlier in the week, and we talked about this particular special, and I think it's a good kind of time just to stop and take a break. And think about what it means that we don't have much. We don't bring much 
other than a heart that beats in gratitude and love for what he's done for us. So just sit in this and listen to this, and then I'll come back and share one other point. I'd love to end there. We could, we could just end there and go straight into communion. Uh, I just want to touch on one other thing briefly here uh, before we end and go into communion. So the difference with Christianity when it comes to love, really when it comes to all change, is the how and the why. Why? Because we have been loved. 
We respond in gratitude. How? Through the power of the Spirit. And I've heard it said that basically change in our life comes through a three-legged stool, so to speak. It's His Word. We need a Word. We need something outside of us that's like a mirror that's reminding us of who we are and who He is and what's needed that we need the Spirit, we need a power to drive those truths deep in us and to change our beliefs. You can't just promise to change the actions. The heart has to change in order for the actions to follow. And then thirdly, it's in community. God always does it through others. It's very rarely is it just in isolation, me sitting somewhere in my quiet time. It's always through others. God is triune. He's three in one. That means before the beginning, before anything, there was perfect love, perfect community. God did not create because he needed a relationship. He had it. Creation was the result of the laughter of the Trinity, the love of the Trinity. It flowed outward. He had to create. He could not create. But what that means is that the heart of reality of all everything before existence is relationship, community, oneness. It says in Genesis 1.26, let us make mankind in our image. They're creating together. But here's what that means. If we don't prioritize that, if we don't make room for that, if, you don't, if you're moving against community in your life, you're moving against me are moving against the very fabric of reality. It won't work. It's like moving against gravity. It will fall apart. As I said, this has haunted me. And I'll share a few personal thoughts on that. But before I do that, I, I want to show you one other clip. Um, this is from a series called Rectify. In this scene, what, just to give you some settings, so the main character has been in prison for 20 years, and we, now find, we find out early on that it's a crime he probably didn't commit because of new DNA evidence. And so he's re-entering back into society, into this small southern town, but people are skeptical. They're not sure how to respond to him. He ends up in this halfway house. He's having a hard time getting along with some of the other housemates. And in this scene, he's had a big, little bit of a scuffle, and so he goes to the house leader to talk about it. Um, so listen to this, and then I'll unpack it and say a few things, and we'll close. The other inmates on the row, we would communicate with each other through the grates. I see. Sometimes with friends, sometimes with... Not friends at all. But no matter who it was, I would never get to see them or feel them, their, their, their presence. And that's not the same. No. No, it's not. And I did that. I lived like that for 20 years. That's a long time. It's a strange way to exist. It's inhuman. After my friend was executed, I became despondent, more despondent. I guess depressed, enraged. But more than anything, I was lonely. So deeply lonely. He had protected me from that more than I realized. I bet. When you were alone with yourself all the time. With no one but yourself, you begin to go deeper and, and deeper into yourself until you lose yourself. It's a perverse contradiction. It's like your ego begins to disintegrate until you have no ego. Not in the sense that you, you become humble or, or or gain some kind of perspective, but that you literally lose your sense of self. And I'm not sure anyone, unless they have gone through it, can, can, can truly understand how 
losses. It's like the psychic glue that binds your whole notion of existence. It's gone. You become unglued. I think, therefore I am. I think too much, therefore I am not. I am not, therefore I am nothing. I am nothing, therefore I am dead. And if I am dead, then why am I still so lonely? You ever play Tonk Dan? No. Never. That's cool. You wanna play Dan? Maybe I'll just watch. Okay. Well, that ain't no fun. Come on, get on in here. We'll walk you through it. What he was talking about earlier on in that scene is being in solitary confinement for 20 years and not having, being only be able to talk to people through the, through the grates, not being able to touch anyone or see anyone. And he said it literally disintegrates your soul. And when we move away from community, it eats away at your, your very life, your very soul. Um, you know, the reason this has haunted me a lot over the years is that one of the things I definitely have struggled with, anybody who knows me, um, I, I can come up with an idea. I can come up with a thousand, a thousand ideas. Sometimes I get so caught up in that idea that I lose sight of the, even those around me because I'm too busy chasing that idea. Um, I remember early on in this building, if you, those of you remember, when we first got in this building and I got on staff full time, we... Uh, I remember one year we did 11 events, one year. I mean, it was just wide open, and it was very, very busy. But I remember one event we did, and it was so, did went well. Um, it was a success, and the community was impacted. And, and then we found out afterwards that one of the team members had lost her mom, and we didn't, no one even knew about it, that we were too busy um, pulling off the production so what does that mean? Just don't do any events, don't do any services, like just ditch everything and just stay focused? Like, no, the problem is we forgot the gospel. We'd forgotten the gospel. And the truth is, whether it's an event or a service like this, or even some simple ministry event, if you're waiting until your motivation is pure, there won't be anybody on the stage. There won't be anybody doing anything. But in that moment, when you look back you're, and you're repenting, you've forgotten the gospel. And so you're asking the Spirit to remind you again of what's real and what's true and what's valuable and what's not. And reminding you of what real art is. Uh, Van Gogh, I said this last time I spoke, but he said, I, he said this, Van Gogh said, I feel... You have that one. Can you jump to that one, Russ? I know I'm jumping ahead. There you go. I feel there is nothing more truly artistic than to love people. You know, I look back on a lot of the things we've done here, and we've done a lot of cool things, but my, you know, I don't want to make it all black or white. Like, there's definitely, I mean, we had a lot of great community and a lot of great times, but the times that I have regrets when I look back is the time that I wasn't more present. Um, and I'm, I'm getting excited about doing some of these things again, and I really feel like that in light of some of the things we, looking back on some of this, I feel like, you know, maybe there's a new, a new or better way forward when we do some of this stuff. Um, but let me just say a couple things as we close. Um, a quote has been, this is what's been said about loving things versus people. Love people, use things. The opposite never works. <laughs> and God always does it again. Let me say this. God always does whatever's happened vertically, whatever's happening with you and I, with him, always happens horizontally. So as this is changing, this should be changing too. And God actually a lot of times is using this to affect this. Right? 
in my own life, some of the greatest change over the last few years has been the way I've been loved. Um, loved by coworkers. Uh, loved, loved by some of the elders here. Loved by my family, my son, his wife, my grandkids. Loved by my wife. No one, no one has demonstrated the gospel to me more than my wife. And it's the very thing that makes me want to change. <laughs> it's like the scene um, from As Good As It Gets when he says, you make me want to be a better man. Uh, Jesus makes me want to be a better man and relationships make me want to be a better man. It's the beauty of the kingdom. So let me end with this as we shift to communion. What's the end game in all this? You know, we're, we're coming to the end of this series, like what was the, what's the point in keeping in step with the Spirit? Like where is God leading with this? Is it just a, like, or is it just a science project to prove He can change us? Or has He always been moving us to something greater? As I said in the very beginning, it's a triune God who's moving out with love, knowing that we're going to rebel, and yet he's already got a plan. And what happens? Jesus enters in. Love incarnate enters, gives his life. There's no way sin and death is going to keep love down. There's no way it can keep him in the grave. And now we are being made into his bride transformed into his likeness. I've heard it said that uh, we are the bride, Jesus is the groom, the Holy Spirit is the best man. The Holy Spirit's constantly saying, look at Jesus, look at Jesus, look at what he's done, look how awesome he is. Pointing us to the very source of love, pointing us to his very nature, that fruit that's going to be worked into us, what? So that we are united and one with the Father. What was Jesus' last prayer in John 17? Make them one as we are one. He wants us to be one with him, one with one another. How's that going to happen? By the power of the Spirit. Why? Because he has loved us. This is how we keep in step. By faith. Let's pray. Jesus, I feel so unqualified. Um, but yeah, that is the point, and that's also the beauty. Knowing that you never fail, that you've never given up, that you always persevere, that you're chasing me and all of us like the hound of heaven. And we come to you now um, as we've sat on your word and as we now look at your table and reminded again of what it means to, to feast on you, to enjoy you, to take you into our lives and to trust that again, I pray. Uh, Holy Spirit, work that in us. Work this great love in us. Work your fruit in us and into the lives of others, I pray in your name. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.